Good morning, Calvary. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Please open your Bibles for our reading, our Bible reading in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. You can find it in the Pew Bible on page, uh, page 847. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied <clears throat> at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of the Lord. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Uh, my name is Manfred Caroli, and I am one of the pastors here at Calvary. And this morning, I have the privilege of uh, sharing God's word with you. As uh, we look and reflect on Jesus' entry to Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, marking the beginning of our Holy Week, um, the first and in the light of uh, this Holy Week, I would like to take a moment to remind you of a few important events that are going to be taking place this coming week here at Calvary. Uh, this coming Thursday at 6.30 p.m., we will have our uh, traditional Monday-Thursday service with a free meal in the dining room. Uh, this will be a time of worship prayer, communion, um, and uh, also this is a family dinner, so you don't uh, want to miss it, and all the children's uh, ages are welcome too, so we want to see as many uh, as possible on that day. And next day on Friday, we would like to invite you to join us here in the sanctuary at 6.30 p.m. Uh, to recount the passion of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ in our Good Friday service. Uh, Childcare will be available for ages 0 to 3. And uh, on Saturday the 8th, uh, the church will be open from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. Um, um, for a time of reflection uh, around the silent Saturday stations. And uh, we will end this Holy Week uh, on Easter Sunday uh, with um, two worship services at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. So we hope you can join us during uh, that, uh, the different services this coming week. Now, um, before I start this morning, um, I'm going to provide you a lot of information right now. Well, not a lot. 
but yes, maybe. Um, so we promise we're going to make it on time, and we, that we will make it to Jerusalem uh, on time. So please bear with me um, and, um, as, as we saw the Lord together this morning. Um, the text this morning um, takes us to the beginning of the end of uh, Jesus' ministry on earth. Uh, that is the beginning of uh, the end of his pilgrimage on earth. A Palm Sunday in the city of Jerusalem, where at the end of that week, uh, he will be enthroned on the cross, and the entire world to this day will never be the same. But something that always gets my attention when reading the gospel accounts is how intentional Jesus was in uh, using every opportunity to teach spiritual principles that reveal something profound about God, the kingdom, about himself, but also something about the ones he was teaching to. So he will do that by using conventional means, simple things, making requests, pointing to people, telling stories, going and crossing through places, feeding and healing people, calming the storm, and also resurrecting people. But he will not only be intentional, but he seemed to be um, operate with a unique uh, and a precise sense of time. Empowered and guided by the Spirit, he was always on time. He will arrive, say, and not precisely when he intended and meant to. And at this point in the story, uh, Jesus has an audience uh, of crowds following him closely, a portfolio of miracles, healings, deliverance from demonic oppressions, all that testified of Jesus as the Son of God and his divine authority. But it's worth noticing that all this is happening geographically outside of Jerusalem, and the path is narrowing for Jesus. The doors are stretching as he approaches the city of David for his enthronement as king. And all those amazing displays of power will be less and less the closer that he gets to the city gates. But the farther that he is from Jerusalem, the more fruitful his ministry seems to be, which is ironic. But besides the crowds that follow him, he always had his disciples in mind in order to build them up and strengthen their faith for the journey ahead, especially for what was coming ahead on that journey. As this last part of the journey leads Jesus and his disciples to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem could be easily be perceived as a place to be feared. I mean, this was the place where he, uh, the Messiah was to be rejected and killed by the religious leaders. I mean, that's what he told the disciples on different occasions on the journey. And here Jesus is on the, on the leading path. He's leading the journey. He's leading the way, setting the course, but also the place where he is to be followed. And the cross is already in his mind. He goes to face that moment knowing what awaits for him, and yet trusting that the Father is in absolute control. In his gospel account, Mark uses the term Son of God and Son of Man to refer to Jesus. But ironically, he also presents Jesus as an outsider the closer that he gets to the city. Following Jesus means taking the path of the cross. You know that. But it's also something we need to consider at the beginning of this Holy Week and our Palm Sunday celebration today. What does it mean to follow Jesus on his pilgrimage as the Son of God and as the Son of Man? The Son of God term indicates Jesus' divinity and his messianic authority. Authority he has demonstrated throughout his ministry when delivering people from demonic oppression, healing the sick, restoring lives, feeding people, walking on water. And a week later in the gospel, we're going to see that he will rise from the dead too. But the Son of Man points towards Jesus' humble and willing disposition to become human and to share that human experience with all in all the respects. Mark encapsulates Jesus' life and ministry in his gospel account by introducing Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God, and he will do the same 
when Jesus takes his last breath on the cross in chapter 15, 39. And as the journey continues, the closer that they get to Jerusalem, the more the disciples will struggle with this question. How do we follow Jesus? The one who claims to be the Messiah, but is heading to the place where he will experience a terrible death. What does it mean to be on a pilgrimage with Jesus as a disciple, to follow him as he walks to his enthronement, to that cross? few components of discipleship that I personally consider important that are essential just to think about are that discipleship requires intentional, immediate, and joyful obedience, a terrible amount of failure, a little bit of faith, and expected suffering. And on top of that, the love, the grace, and the faithfulness of God in the midst of all that. Why? Well, I think because these components and the level of a disciple will separate him from a follower. You see, the disciples were followers, but not every follower was a disciple. This means that the disciples struggled, yes, they were the opposite of failure-proof. And a closer look into chapters 8 to 10 in the Gospel of Mark gives weight and points toward the struggle and the question we are considering this morning. What does it mean to follow Jesus? <laughs> Specifically, in that section of the Gospel, the disciples failed to understand the necessity of the death of Jesus. Still, they will understand that post-resurrection as they look back to what Jesus thought, what he asked, his words, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But as we consider these questions, please allow me to pray for us this morning. Gracious God, we ask you that you will fill you this place with your presence. That uh, your word will speak to us this morning. Not only that we're convinced in areas in our lives, but we need to grow, but that we might be convinced of things that we need to confess and repent from. Thank you for Calvary, these people. Thank you for this family, Lord, that you have brought under your name this morning. I ask for direction and guidance this morning, Lord. Um, and I just pray that you will take this loveful bread and fish and just make it into a feast. If you are willing to do that, for your glory. Amen. So I divided this uh, uh, section in the narrative in three different uh, sections. Um, so first, we're going to observe one to, verses 1 to 6, then 7 to 10, and finally, we'll stay with verse 11 for the closing. So in the first six verses, we read, uh, and we're familiar with the story how Jesus sets his plan in motion by sending two of the 12 disciples to bring him an unreading, unbroken donkey. He sends them ahead of the journey with specific instructions for the task to succeed. He tells them where to go, what to find, what to do, what to say, how to respond, and what to expect. <laughs> and all these instructions were given with precise and detailed description. But how did he possibly know all that? That's a question that many people um, have asked. And scholars and commentators have suggested two possible answers. Jesus being Lord and God had a special supernatural knowledge about every uh, situation in life. And all those details were known to him with anticipation, which is true. And the other option is that he knew the owners of the donkey and he had previously prearranged with the, them the bore of the donkey on a specific time with a specific purpose. So I just want to argue this morning real quick that both positions are correct and don't contradict each other because the two point to God and his sovereignty, lordship, authority, and insight. You'll see he's sovereign when using conventional means and relationships or when great displays of power take place in order to fulfill his plans. So the request given to his disciples is not exception. 
But there was something bigger in the making, and that request was the means to fulfill it. First, Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that follow him as Messiah and as the Son of God would mean believing and accepting that he was in absolute control of everything, and that the events that took place that week, including his suffering and death, were part of the plan and not an accident. The second thing is, because he is the Lord and everything belongs to him, he can exercise his order privileges by using what rightfully belongs to him. So in verse 3, if you notice, Jesus' request carried a different name for himself. So if you can look at verse 3, he says, If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Well, just say, the Lord needs it. And he will send it back immediately. Just because the Lord needs it. And, and that was to be enough. But if we are honest, this could have been not only an unusual request for the disciples and the owners of the donkey, even more unusual is that the disciples didn't ask why. <laughs> And the Lord didn't give them additional information or explanation. And the owner seemed to be okay with that. Yes, take it. It's okay. A principle of disciples that we can learn from this moment is that following the Lord means being humble to obey at all times for as simple as the task can be. And be also willing to give that which he requires from us. So if the task is unusual or if we experience a temporary sense of loss, we will do that simply because the Lord needs it. But this moment also had royal connotations, and Jesus taught them something they will understand later. Here, the request for the unbroken, unridden donkey was pointing to something bigger than just Jesus needing a cool ride for Jerusalem. The donkey was the tool of choice, the symbol of his entry. Mark doesn't provide additional information to explain the need for the donkey. Still, Matthew 21, 4, there the writer explains the why and the need for the donkey by quoting Zechariah 9, 9. Let me read it to you. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a call, the fall of a beast of burden. In the prophet's words, almost 500 years before Jesus' birth, this entry, this moment, was prearranged with detailed preparation to fulfill God's plan. And to make it more than evident that he was the awaited Messiah, the humble servant king. And to get his message across, which is very interesting, <laughs> to make it bright and clear that he was who he was claiming to be, Jesus prepared a method used by the prophets of Israel in the Old Testament. So when words failed to move people, they did something dramatic to get people's attention. Their slogan was, if you can or if you don't want to hear it, you must be compelled to see it. These dramatic actions were what someone called acted warnings of dramatic sermons. And that is the method Jesus employed here to point to his prearranged, deliberate, and dramatic claim to the throne and his messianic identity. That's what was being celebrated on my pal Sunday, like this one, the one that we're celebrating today. That Jesus came to bring good news, the good news of the gospel, to establish his kingdom and to the, reveal his identity to the world, not by sitting on a throne, but embracing a cross, suffering and dying for the transgressions of the world, and to bring peace and restoration, not by crushing his enemies, but to redeem them and to save them. And these unusual requests serve as a symbol, a catalyst for that powerful entry. The sovereign king who has perfect control willingly surrender himself before his rebel creatures to conquering meekness, weakness, loneliness, and humility. 
And by riding a donkey, Christ defeated his enemies by going to the cross in humility, love, peace, and power. When going to war, a king will ride a horse, but when riding a donkey meant that he was coming in peace. And Jesus' message to his disciples and the crowds were for them to see that he didn't come to take the world by force and to wrap it up in judgment and instead by peace and love first. Following Jesus as the Messiah and King means that we follow a Savior who sends us into the world as ambassador of his love and his peace. And our calling is to be willing to be the catalyst, not the hero, to be the one who untied the donkey, not the one riding it. But this is something that contradicts the culture of our success and performance of our time. We, I think all, including myself, we all want to be part of great things. Things that speak of greatness, success, fame, power, and recognition. And those are the things that are defined in its own terms by the worldly standards. But it's worth considering the fact that prior to their arrival, by whatever means God considered appropriate, he had been present and moving and working and orchestrating every detail, the good and the not so good in that village, in the lives of the owners, in the lives of the disciples. So when he entrusted his disciples with a task... He already knew the outcome and the circumstances around it. He was present there already. The disciples were not calling to avoid. They were called to join the Lord where he was at work. The Lord will send us, his servants, precisely to the place and the time where he has already been working, where there is faith, whether we see it or not, and the place that we need to be at. So where there is hatred, we go so that we can bring love where there is war so that we can announce his peace, where there is division so that we can bring his unity. I will say this, Operation Donkey, and a few days later in the narrative Operation Upper Room, was to the eyes of any honest reader, the simplest, not simplistic, task Jesus could, could have asked from his disciples, and yet the spark that started the fire for the revolution that took place the following week on the events of the crucifixion and his resurrection to this very day. The obedience of the disciples and the owners, whose names are not even mentioned, details that sometimes we even overlook, met God's pre-established agenda on that day. They were chosen as humble instruments in God's plan to restore the world by saying yes to the Lord in the task for initial as it was. So let me ask you this morning, what is Jesus asking from you? In what unusual, unwanted, unpleasant, small, or even draining tasks have you commissioned to? I can think about a few. <laughs> Where is he leading you? What is he asking from you? Can you maybe pray this morning like this? All that I am, all that I have is yours. Here I am, send me. Do with me according to your will. I surrender my life completely to you. Now, can you do that without knowing where he's taking you? It's scary to pray like that, right? <laughs> so in the first verses, we observed the disciples' response concerning Jesus' request. And now in verses 7 to 10, we are confronted now with the crowd's response to Jesus as he approaches the city. So verse 7 provides more light on the narrative and the prearranged actions of Jesus. And the moment that they bring that donkey and he sits on it, the part of the cross becomes the part of no turning back. 
the crowds in front, the crowds behind, many of whom had probably witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. The miracles he performed and those going to the Passover celebration were following Jesus now as he was the center of total euphoria and acclamation. He was the center of that moment. The crowds were hysterical, spreading their cloths on the road and branches. They welcomed Jesus. That was the symbol that they used, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hundreds of people gathered around Jesus at that moment as he approached the city where Jesus is self-proclaiming and revealing his identity publicly for the first time. He no longer asks people to keep it quiet. He's embracing his identity as the rightful and sovereign Messiah and King that he is by making a public statement. And the crowds oh, responded by partially acknowledging that. This moment is significant and yet misunderstood by the crowds when acknowledging Jesus as Messiah and also misguided by the popular idea of who he truly was. What kind of Messiah were they following, shouting and wanting to enthrone as their king? What kind of king were they asking for? As the events continue unfolding on that Passover celebration, Jesus will be the king his people didn't really want. And this is the irony, by the way, of this Palm Sunday, <laughs> that he came to his people, and his people did not receive him. A remnant of the moment when Israel asked for a king, when there was no king, remember, in 1 Samuel 8, at the beginning of that long monarchy line, people asked for a king they wanted, but now it's God who's given the king they need, and they would reject him. First, their minds and thoughts regarding the expected Messiah were those of a conqueror who will come to eradicate and shatter their enemies. Restore Israel to the days of glory, free them, and save them from the tyranny of Rome. And second is that those ideas and thoughts about the awaited Messiah gave way to what they were singing and shouting, Hosanna! But just as their understanding of Messiah was misunderstood, their worship lacked meaning and understanding. Hosanna means save now. Please save us. It was but a plea and worship, prayer and worship, if you will. And this is a messianic psalm that sings of the stone rejected by the builders that was to become the cornerstone. <laughs> they missed the connection between the cornerstone in Psalm 118 and Isaiah 53. They had the music, but not the melody. They were on the right path, longing for the coming of the Messiah and King, and yet they failed to see him. The salvation that Jesus brought was not of a military and political nature over Rome, but that is the kingdom they envisioned. The kingdom that Jesus brought, on the other hand, was that of repentance, humility, peace, servanthood. And to receive the kingdom was to believe, to have faith in the king, and embrace and follow the king to where he was heading. At the beginning of the Holy Week, just as Jesus revealed his identity as the Son of God, those who follow him and profess their allegiance and faith those who claim to believe will be confronted with the cross, but also their faith will be exposed. Some of the followers in the crowds would change their song and praise from Hosanna to crucify him. And they will do that with the same euphoria. They welcome and follow Jesus on the pad on that Palm Sunday, but instead by rejecting and humiliating their king. Why? Well, the answer is because this was God's prearranged means to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And the cross was the most efficient path. That's how the church will be built, by reconciling sinful, broken, and needed people like us as a testimony to the world. 
And I appreciate how Mark in his gospel purposely links the triumphal entry moment with the healing of Bartimaeus in chapter 10. Even though Bartimaeus was blind, he has more sight to see. <laughs> he has more sight to see Jesus <laughs> and acknowledge his need for mercy and repentance than the crowds that had asked to see and failed to recognize his salvation that it was in front of them. Is the Messiah and King you believe in leading you closer to the path of the cross? And what are the things that you need in your life that you need sight for? Freedom from, deliverance from, and salvation. Because this Holy Week invites us to reconsider the idol and via celebration. We celebrate and remember the enthronement of the King as he walks to the cross. But can we follow him there every day? During our worship times, we can continue singing what we have sung for years, but also we need to recognize our own situation and daily need for the gospel in our lives too. We can know the music and we can know the lyrics, and yet without the melody that is Christ. We can flatter God because he cares for us, protects us, and keeps us, but our hearts can be far from him. But when worshiping the Lord becomes real, it becomes more than words. We're called to worship in spirit and in truth. This means that he's the center of our worship, and we praise him for all that he has given us, yes, but also that he has given us all the proof we need of his love on the cross. Our worship is the result of understanding who he is and what he accomplished in that cross. That is the good news of the gospel and the life that he offered us. And for some here, and I include myself this morning, our worship and the meaning of Hosanna might come out with a ring of despair due to the painful circumstances we are experiencing. There might be some here who urgently needs revelation of Christ to receive healing, to be rescued, to be loved, and to be saved. There might be some here asking the Lord, where are you? I don't see you. I don't sense you. Are you there? And perhaps some of you are feeling closer to the shadow of Bartimaeus and the Hosanna of the crowds, crying out deep inside, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my family. Have mercy on my kids. Have mercy on my marriage, my health, my life. And you know what Jesus' reply is? <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? What is that you really want? Interesting, too, is that if Jesus had wanted to take control of the city and create a revolt and crowd himself as a king, he would have done it without much effort. But he didn't. The crowds were large. In total euphoria, the conditions were ideal to start a revolution, but he didn't. He took a different path. However, his death on the cross did bring a revolution the third day, not the one the crowds expected, but the one the world and humanity needed as God responds to seeing death and destruction. Because that's what God does. He just simply, he doesn't simply react. He responds. And salvation is God's love response to humanity. And right here we see Jesus responding, following and obeying at the cost of his own life willingly. And you know what? We should be extremely grateful that we have a God who responds and answers because if he had reacted to sin, I personally think that I will be here today. 
Jesus Christ was the eternal prearranged sufficient and once and for all answers to eradicating sin and death. He was, is, and will continue to be the response this world needs. The people of his time, and perhaps our time, were not ready nor willing to welcome a suffering Messiah that would die in weakness. They were not ready for a Savior that would expose the magnitude of their sin and the emptiness of their religion and their absolute inability to set their lives right before God. Discipleship can be messy too. <laughs> the Messiah they wanted was the one feeding thousands, healing people, and raising people from the dead. That is the one Messiah they wanted. Not the ones, not the one calling to repentance and confronts them with their sinful lifestyles and the empty religious practices. The one that invites us to consider suffering as a part of the territory of what it means to follow him. The crowds acclaimed Jesus as king, but their motivations were wrong. They did not know who he was. They wanted a domesticated Messiah to serve and satisfy their needs. A divine waiter at a five-star Michelin type of restaurant, you know, a consumer, transactional relationship, prosperity gospel kind of savior. Jesus was not the expected Messiah they wanted. And I think perhaps verse 11, as we come to an end, give us a little more uh, understanding, give us a clue into the reality as we continue observing Jesus in absolute control of the events of his life and the impact his death will have on the affairs of the world and humanity. Because he, were, he goes where he intended to be at the beginning of his journey. Mark takes time now in verse 11 to let his readers know that Jesus went into the temple. He looked around at everything and left with the 12 because he was late. But this is a weird, unusual, bizarre conclusion for a day like this. It's quiet. We don't read anything about the crowds. Jesus doesn't go to the palace, but is run to the temple the center of Israel's faith. And the shouting, the singing, and the euphoria of the crowds that followed Jesus to Jerusalem were inconsistent and not in tune with the faith and worship he saw when he entered the temple. Because he knew that their hearts were as hard as rocks. Jesus was looking for a faith that is persevering at all times. And in the following days, that will be evident. So we can be intentionally emotional with our worship and yet unwilling to submit to God's will in our life. And the problem is not in our emotions. I was completely emotional in the first service. Just by introducing myself, imagine that. But I think that the question that we need to ask ourselves is if our emotions correspond to our obedience to God. And may the Lord help us here at Calvary from becoming a community that throws our cloaks and branches, and yet we lack devotion to Him. Because that can be done when worship becomes familiar. In this last verse, Mark might be contrasting the events prior to this moment to let his readers know that the excitement and the enthusiasm and the shouting can, can be confused with the faith Jesus was looking for in contrast, for instance, with the faith that Bartimaeus had. That was the faith Jesus was looking for in the temple. Also, we shouldn't confuse the lack of action from Jesus and his silence with the apparent lack of response because he was considering his response. He was in control. Mark wanted his original readers and us today to learn how Jesus received his strength. He went back to the peace of Bethany. He saw God's presence before facing the awa what was awaiting for him in the following days. His secret to facing life was found in the abiding presence of the Father. 
the power of the Spirit. And finally, we read that the disciples were still with him. <laughs> Just as quickly as the crowd gathered, as quickly as they got dispersed, but only the disciples remained with Jesus. In the culture of our time, we can confuse fame and popularity with what it means to be a disciple, with what it means to follow Christ. Following Jesus as the Son of God and as the Son of Man to be truly his disciples means that we have to submit our lives fully to his lordship and authority. To submit our will to his, despite the many ways we will fail. But we fall already, just like the disciples did. To embrace the cross and confessing his name, we are called this morning to join the powerful declaration that we read in chapter 1539. We are called to join with the Roman centurion's declaration and all the generations of believers after that. Truly, this man was the Son of God. That is the irony of, the day, of this day, that Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, was not found in the shouting of the procession, but at the cross. Nothing wrong with it, but to be his disciples and to know what it means to follow Christ, we must look at the cross. Jesus' mission led him to the cross because the kingdom was to be established by the weight of the cross and with a king nailed to it. This is something that can be received by natural means. It can only be received by faith. To follow Jesus as his disciples, we need to embrace his identity so that we can understand the cross and the nature of our mission. If we don't hold this together, we won't be able to understand the essence of our mission as disciples which requires to follow him on the path to the cross as we walk to the new creation. And this moment is going to take us to the table this morning. So I would like to explain how um, we're going to go about communion today. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, um, the communion elements have been brought to you, uh, but today the invitation is to come forth to the table. And we're going to do something symbolic uh, it's customary in some cultures when someone is invited to a meal at a house to bring something, but the host won't ask for it. Uh, it is culturally embedded in the invitation to bring something to the table, and this is a way to honor the host. So as we approach the table this morning, I want to invite you to consider bringing something you carry with you today. Let me, let me explain. We have placed cards and uh, pencils uh, in the pews. Uh, you can reach them right now where you can write down one thing or things that you carry with you this morning. This is symbolic. For some, it might be a praise, maybe a word of gratitude, a burden, a need, or the pain you carry for someone you love. For some, it might be a confession. And as we do that, keep in mind that as, as you drop the car in the baskets that we have here, this covenantal meal reminds us that he gave himself for us and for what we carry today, we confess today that Christ is enough. So we're not going to read the card, so don't worry. Again, this is symbolic, and you don't have to do it if you don't want to, but I still want to invite you to join us at the table. Uh, the band is going to lead us in a time of worship, um, so while they do that, I want to invite you to take the moment and just to consider what is that you carry with you this morning. Um, in a moment, I'm going to come to the table. Um, and as I do that, I would like to, usher, to invite the ushers to come forth and, and just join me around the table. Uh, we ask that you come through the center aisles and then you go back to your seats uh, by the sides, uh, holding the uh, elements uh, together. Um, 
Let me close this time in prayer before we go to the table. Lord, thank you for your words this morning and for inviting us to reconsider what it means to follow you as we look at the cross. Help us to submit the unwillingness of our hearts and surrender our lives and everything completely to you. Lord, change our hearts and help us to be a church that proclaims the Lordship of Jesus with our lives by vindicating the beautiful, rugged cross. In your name we pray. Amen.